note and let's look at our scripture that can be found in the inside of the bullets in page four. Um, this is Paul. Paul has been, uh, we've been in the book of Romans for a while and Paul has been speaking about Adam and Christ, the superiority of Christ where uh, death and sin came in through Adam that Christ has come in and brought righteousness. And uh, there's, there's almost a postscript at the end of this uh, passage in Romans 5 where Paul wants to address something and that address he's asking about is people he's sure are going to ask the question, what, what about the law? What is the purpose of the law? Speaking of the Mosaic laws, you're speaking about Adam and Christ. Where, where does the law fit in all of this? And so uh, Paul has this postscript in Romans 5, 20 and 21 that we're going to talk about. So here is the scripture, Romans 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. It was this Wednesday, 2.19 p.m., when Nicholas Cruz, getting out of his Uber ride, walked into Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School with an assault rifle and numerous clips of ammunition, pulled the fire alarm and began shooting. Pandemonium and chaos erupted in the school. One can only imagine what those students and teachers felt. At the end of the day, 17 students and teachers had been killed many more injured. Nicholas blended into the crowd, but eventually was arrested a couple hours later. As information has come out on this person, Nicholas Cruz, uh, there are some um, interesting facts about him. He was an adopted child. Uh, From the beginning, it seemed that there were some things scary about Nicholas's character. He used to introduce himself to people Hi, my name is Nicholas Cruz. I'm a school shooter. Even before he had carried out his act. He displayed antisocial tendencies. He was expelled from this high school for fighting. Um, he, um, it, it would appear that uh, it was very clear what he was going to do and he ended up doing it. And with this shooting, three of the ten deadliest mass shootings in modern United States history have come in the last five months. And we are left asking the question, why is this happening? How can this happen in the United States of America? The talk show hosts are in full swing coming up with the solutions, the uh, different solutions that are being bandied about. One of them, of course, being gun control. How can people like this have weapons in their hands so easily? A valid question. Additionally, the information has come out about the FBI getting information and not doing anything about it or doing enough about it. And so the calls for better law enforcement, that perhaps is the answer how to stop things like this happening. And the religious answer that seems to be coming out is We have taken God out of the school. And this is the natural consequence of it. We do raise our children in an environment in public school where God is 
it would seem not allowed, certainly a God taught about. Perhaps there's some validity to that. I don't know if you've seen the billboards. I'm sure they will be coming out if they have, uh, are not out already. What this country needs is a return to the Ten Commandments. And so we need to ask the question, is that true? Which one of these solutions are the correct ones? We're really going to look at the religious one. The concept behind the, what this country needs is a return to the Ten Commandments is simply this. We live in an irreligious environment. And if one knows right and wrong, if we start teaching kids right and wrong, they will start acting right. Perhaps there's some truth of that to the degree. But it really, if you think about it, is the same question that is being asked to Paul at the end of this passage. What about the law? What's the purpose of the law? Is it to teach us right and wrong? Because that is what we need to know in terms of to start acting right, to achieve merit with God. You're telling us about this person, Jesus Christ. What about the law that God has given? We know that the law may have some ability to restrain external behavior, but Jesus is very clearly saying, and Paul is saying, that the law cannot change the human heart. The law cannot change us from the inside out. See, for many of us, we need to evaluate the place and position of the law in our own lives. Because for many of us, our Christianity boils down to simply this. I need to get my act together. I need to start living better. I need to start living a right life. In fact, if everyone did that, everything would be fine. But the scriptures are telling us that there is a better way to live. It's not about religion or irreligion. It's about grace. It's about God's ability to change the human heart from the inside out. Not simply to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Indeed, everything is leading to grace. That that is the supreme purpose of creation and redemption. And because grace reigns supreme, there's hope for everyone. That hearts can change. The most wicked, the most downtrodden, the most despair. That there can be hope in the face of uncertainty, in the face of disaster. Grace, my friends, is the most powerful force on the face of the earth. And so choose to build your life on grace. We need to dig into these questions. We need to ask the same question that they're asking. What is the role of the law? How are we supposed to treat the law in our life? Then we need to look at the superiority of grace. How grace does triumph over the law. And finally, we need to examine the reality and the truth that all of these things are leading up to what life is all about. You know, I sent out a, a text on, uh, uh, we sent out some things on social media that if anyone can answer the questions about what's going on in our world, it should be Christianity. I love C.S. Lewis's quote, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not just because I can see the sun, but rather by it I can see everything else. See, it's in this passage that we understand what God has been up to all along from the beginning how this world ends, what it's all leading up to. The triumphant reign of grace. 
Well, let's begin. Let's look at the role of the law. So Paul in this postscript says in verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. The law he's speaking of is the Mosaic law. If you'll remember, God takes a people, the Israelites, he brings them out of slavery, out of the slavery of Egypt and sets them uh, on a new direction. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will give you laws in which to follow. And if you obey these laws, you will receive blessings. I will settle you in a land flowing with milk and honey and I will dwell with you and I will watch over you and protect you. None will be able to stand against you. But if you do not obey my law, these are the curses that will come upon you. The Mosaic law really until uh, the, the, if you remember the first uh, creation of Adam and Eve, there was a law that was given to Adam as well, right? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Here's what you are to do. Here's what you're not to do. Adam failed miserably. And humanity was plunged into sin and darkness. Well, until then, there has been this gap, if you will, where there hasn't been a a clear rendering of what is it that God requires of man. So the Mosaic law came in. Now, everyone who's listening to this passage must have been shocked that the law came in to increase the trespass. Their understanding of the law was the law was given to make us righteous. But that is not what the law came in to do. To be sure the law has many purposes, but making one righteous, it's not possible. Rather, it came in to increase the trespass. Now notice the word. It doesn't say the law came in to increase trespasses but rather to increase the trespass. It's a singular. Which trespass is he talking about? He's talking about the trespass of man. That original trespass of Adam. That original sin of disobedience to God. How does the law increase trespass? We see in Romans 5.14 that I preached on last week that death has been reigning from Adam to Moses even over those who sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So how does the law increase trespass? Well, the first thing it does is the law defines sin. Romans 7, 7 puts it this way. What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law clearly demarcated, showing what was right and wrong. It showed sin. It defined it. It laid down the law, if you will. But in defining sin, the law actually incited sin. Romans 7, 8 goes on. The law says you shall not covet, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. See, sin that was dwelling within people, when they heard the law, it actually incited the law. We've seen real life examples of this, right? You're told, never tell your children, don't stick your tongue to the flagpole. 
Don't even utter those words because it starts to mull in their head, right? Well, why can't I stick my tongue to the flagpole? How can you tell me not to stick my tongue to the flagpole? And sure enough, sooner or later, one kid tries it. If you're very skilled with this, you say to your young lad uh, who's at your kitchen table, don't eat your peas. Well, they don't want to eat their peas, but they don't want to be told not to eat their peas. Who are you to tell me not to eat my peas? And so they go ahead and eat their peas until they finally realize what you're doing when they get a little bit older and say, ha, you can't do that to me. There is something within us that rebels from being told what to do, even if we don't want to do it. It's that no trespassing sign, isn't it? Scriptures say, once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now Paul is not saying that he was alive in the sense of spiritually alive before the commandment. Rather, the sin was lurking in his heart. It only took the command to show, to shine a flashlight on the twistedness of the human heart. See, there's something screwed up in us, isn't there? It's like we're a compass that's supposed to point north, but we point south. We rebel against this idea that you shall have no gods before you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not bow down or worship anything. Who are you, God, to tell me what to do? And so telling us right and wrong is not a bad thing. But the law in inciting sin condemns us. See, the law confronts us with a specific will and we transgress just like Adam. In effect, we become little Adams, don't we? Little Adams and Eves, that's the purpose of the law. It came in to increase the trespass. To show us who say, I would never be like Adam. The reality, when we look in the mirror, we discover that we're just like him. We're just like Eve. We're just like them. The law tells us right and wrong, and that's not a bad thing. It can restrain sin. Perhaps that's one of the problems with our world now. There was a fear of God, if you will, whatever that God was, that restrained sin from breaking out in the ways that we see it. But it really just drove sin more into the human heart, didn't it? It can't change us. The law can't save us. Galatians put it this way, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But it didn't. All the law can do is show us ourselves and convict us I love the picture of that tax collector and that Pharisee in the scriptures, right? Where they go to the temple to pray. And the tax collector looks at his heart and looks at his sin and says, God, have mercy on me. It moved him to look for the mercy of God. The Pharisee, however, supposedly a master of the law, saw nothing. The reality is we divide our world into two categories, don't we? either the religious or the irreligious. I think we know which one Nicholas Cruz falls in. 
but irreligious or religious, neither of them are good enough. There has to be a third way. I don't know if you know the story of Martin Luther. He would have fallen on the other side of the spectrum, right? Religious. In the beginning, Martin was actually studying to become an attorney. And there was a, a lightning storm. And lightning flashed around him and it struck a tree next to him. And he spit out, God, if you'll save me. In fact, he prayed to Saint Anne. If you save me, I'll become a monk. And he was saved and so he became a monk. He knew he owed God his life. And so he was driven to find acceptance with God through works. He wrote, I tortured myself with prayer and fasting and vigils and freezing. The frost alone might have killed me. What else did I seek by doing this but God who was supposed to note my strict observance of the monastic order and my austere life? I constantly walked in a dream and lived in idolatry for I did not believe in Christ. I regarded him only as a severe and terrible judge portrayed as seated on a rainbow. Why was he seated on a rainbow? A, a severe and terrible judge seated on a rainbow. Wouldn't he be on a, like a nasty throne or something like that? That's Martin for you. When I was a monk, I wearied myself greatly for 15 years with the daily sacrifice. I earnestly thought to acquire righteousness by my works. He tried to obey the law. Indeed, when he went to Rome, he saw, he climbed the Scala Sancta, which are the holy stairs. You can see them in Rome. They're supposedly the stairs uh, that led up to Pontius Pilate. And the priest said that if you went up, your sta- up these stairs on your knees, praying uh, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer, you could be forgiven. And so Luther did so, repeating the Lord's Prayer, kissing each step and seeking peace with God. There were 28 of them, by the way. But when he reached the top step, he looked back and he thought, who knows whether this is true? He felt no closer to God. As if indeed it's not enough. The miserable sinners, I raged on with fierce and troubled conscience, trying to obey but never having peace. See, Martin in the beginning was the proponent of religion. Sure looked like he was doing all the right things. We would have held him in awe perhaps. But it didn't change his heart. Really, it was probably just a matter of time before Martin snapped. Whether it's Martin Luther or Nicholas Cruz, religion or irreligion, none can change the human heart. So what about you? Are you the religious or the irreligious one? I was just dragged here by my wife. We got to go to church, right? We're having kids. We got to raise them in the right way. So I'm here, but I don't really believe any of this stuff. I'll be the church guy at this time, but then it's time to go out into the world. I'm going to do my own thing. Or maybe you're the religious one. Can't miss church. Can't miss the Bible study. The prayer. Every day, I've got to have my quiet time. I've got my closet. I've got my verses up. I'm going to live a holy life. There's no peace with God. Secretly, you fear him, maybe even hate him. Paul is saying the law, all it can do in the end is increase the trespass. It leads us to the third way, the gospel of grace, because it's grace that's superior to the law. 
That brings me to my second point, the superiority of grace. Now, if the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So it's sin versus grace. And what is sin? Verse 15, which I preached about last week, it's trespass, right? For if by one man's trespass, death reigned. Sin is trespass against God's law. In your heart or in your actions. Then what is grace? Much more, says verse 15, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Well, I thought they were the same. No, the free gift of righteousness is what comes out of the abundance of grace. So grace is the free and unmerited favor of God as manifested in the salvation of sinners and the bestowal of blessings. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to the restless, the unmerited favor of God. It's the heart of God toward people, the love of God toward the unlovable. See, grace primarily is not about us. While everyone desperately needs it, grace is not about us. Grace fundamentally is a word about God. It's his uncoerced initiative and pervasive and extravagant demonstration of his favor. And the scriptures tell us that where grace, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In fact, the Greek, if you translate it, would be grace superabounded. I've been on a math kick lately, and so I think it this way. You have law on one side, and you have grace. And you have that carrot, if you will, where grace is greater than the law. Every time the law increases and sin increases with it, grace increases even more. But it says that grace does not increase proportionally to the law. It actually superabounds. And so you can square grace, if you will, to the law. You can square grace to the sin. Every time that the sin increases, grace increases to the square of the sin. It super abounds. See, if the law is the flashlight on our hearts, grace is the flashlight on God's heart. It shows the bottomlessness of his love and forgiveness and heart for wicked, evil people, religious or irreligious, whatever the veneer. So the law was put in charge, as Galatians says, to lead us to Christ. This is the point of the law. Not ultimately to restrain sin, Not ultimately to point the finger and show how bad you are, but ultimately to show how beautiful and wonderful and great is the love of God. Well, is there a limit to God's grace? All things have a limit, don't they? Apparently, not God's grace. If a person sins and comes to you and shows them your fault, how many times should you forgive them, says Jesus? 
Up to seven times? No, seven times 70 times. Only 490 times? No, he's given an illustration. I hope I did my math right there, by the way. God's grace never ends. Seems that our world's wickedness is increasing, doesn't it? Is there a point when God says no more? No. I love the story. We're going to talk about wicked people, right? We've talked about Nicholas Cruz's actions. Can grace even extend to a Nicholas Cruz? Well, what about John Newton? Many of you know John Newton by the, so, uh, the song that he wrote, Amazing Grace. But Newton was actually, uh, before he was a, a, a clergyman, he was a slave trader. He was born in the 1700s and early in his life, Newton actually had a praying mom who taught him the Bible and how to pray. But when she died, Newton went to sea with his father. And his father was involved with the slave trade and he was, worked his way up the ranks. But he actually was a, was a bad, bad guy. He couldn't even be controlled in the service. And so uh, he was marooned, actually. He became a slave for a while in West Africa. He escaped, though. And he ultimately, finally ended up getting his dream job, the master of the slave ship Duke of Argyle. And after taking trips on the Duke of Argyle and then on his ship, the Africa, he would... Basically, ferry slaves from one place to another. Newton admitted he was a ruthless businessman and an unfeeling observer of the Africans he traded. Slave revolts on the board ship were frequent. Newton mounted guns and muskets on the desk aimed at the slaves' quarters. Slaves were lashed and put in thumbscrews to keep them quiet. But over the course of several different events in his life, he remembered about this person, Jesus Christ. Remembered what his mom taught him. And it was over a process of time where Newton finally came to realize that what he was doing was wrong. How could he find a way to forgive himself? He couldn't. He heard the message of Jesus Christ. The grace that comes to wicked people, to those who have no hope through the veneer of the law. He came to faith. He became a pastor. He preached the gospel. He cared for the poor and the sick and the lonely. And at the behest of his young protege, William Wilberforce, he wrote a pamphlet called Thoughts Upon the Slave Trade in which he described the horrific conditions of the slave ships. And he apologized for a confession which comes too late. As he said, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. He had copies of it sent to every MP in Parliament and it sold out so well it swiftly required reprinting. Newton was an ally of Wilberforce and rejoiced to see the abolishing of the slave trade. And this was the epitaph that he wrote on his tombstone. John Newton Clark, Clark, excuse me, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. 
See, there's no hope in religion for a John Newton. There's no hope in religion for a Nicholas Cruz. There's something in us that shudders. Perhaps someone like Nicholas might come to faith after the wickedness and pain that he's caused. But grace is available to the most wicked of sinners. Now, this is very important. You need to hear this. I'm not saying that Nicholas Cruz does not need to face the consequences of his sins. He most certainly does. If you commit a crime, there are consequences for that. And the forgiveness of Jesus Christ does not annul those. Indeed, repentance requires restitution. But if we cannot change, we're all doomed. There are other people trapped in the wickedness of this action by this man. One could say and see that there's no hope for the parents of these children who've been killed or for the children of the teachers who are parents who are uh, parents who are teachers that their life is to be filled with anger and despair and hopelessness and bitterness. My wife and I and our children have experienced this temptation in our own life. We are no strangers to gun violence and murder. But you see, it's the gospel that has the power to bring love into the human heart. Whether the perpetrator or the victim. To show that God is greater, that there is a greater way than simply doing right or wrong. The gospel is for the sins that you commit. And the gospel is for the sins that are committed against you. So what are the limits that you are putting on God's grace? Oh, Jesus knew my past. Jesus knew my secret sins that I've told no one about. No, there is a limit to how far his cross will go. The answer is there is no limit. Repent and believe. Whatever that means in your life. What about the sins that have been committed against me? I'm never going to trust anyone and that includes Jesus Christ. Jesus knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to hang on a cross and to take on the sins that he never committed in order to free us from the chains of our past. Irreligion or religion cannot change the human heart, but grace has no limits. It superabounds. So get off the treadmill. Surrender your life to the love of Christ. Confess your sins. Experience the forgiveness that Newton experienced. How ironic that the man who kept so many Africans in chains was the one who had the ultimate chains fall off his soul as he was forgiven because of Christ's payment for his actions. Well, this brings me to the end of my sermon and my final point. Hope for the world. God's grace is greater than simply our individual hearts. There's a storyline that we're in And we have to see it if we're going to understand how to make sense of these 
actions that are going on in our world. See, the gospel is not some rescue plan that God concocted when things went awry. Creation has always had a purpose. And verse 21 sums it up this way. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. See, it's not just that grace superabounds, but that the superabounding grace will be seen and known as reigning triumphantly over death and sin and hell. See, we see the so that in verse 21 of all of this, as sin reigned in death, even so, grace would reign through righteousness of Jesus Christ to eternal life. See, this grace that has been ushered in is through Jesus Christ, his righteousness that brings a righteousness to us. It's it's at the end, it will lead to eternal life. You see, at the end, sin will be destroyed and death will be destroyed and condemnation will be destroyed. But what will go on and on and on? What will reign supreme in the end? Who will be left in the end? Sinners like John Newton, who said, I only know two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. How long will it take for us to understand, to fathom the greatness of the grace of Jesus Christ. I simply finish with the last stanza of Amazing Grace written by John Newton. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. even now we begin in the greatest journey of all to seek to plumb the depths of the grace of God who would save wretches like you and me. And 10,000 years from now when all of sin is gone and the earth is restored and resurrected we will barely have scratched the surface of this grace that reigns to eternal life through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We grieve and we mourn with the people of Florida and these parents. But it does not shake us from the reality and the truth that there is a battle and a war. But where sin increases, grace superabounded. Grace is the most powerful force in the world. Don't build your life on religion. Don't build your life on irreligion. Build your life on grace. Begin the journey. Encourage others to do the same. Let's pray. If I'm honest... I was a wretch who needed saving. My heart was darkened. I had no hope. But despite my bald fist at you, God, with the gentle grace of Jesus Christ, you came in. 
and transformed me and captivated me by your love. I pray if there's anyone in this room who has not yet surrendered to your Christ that they would do so today. They would repent and if necessary, make restitution. But experience the liberation that comes with living as forgiven and free. May our lives be a living testament that grace triumphs over sin, over death, over law. In Jesus' name, amen.